I want to take a moment here before the show begins to remember friend and previous show guest, Luca Carabini. He died a couple of weeks ago in the Sierra Nevadas. It is a really big loss for the canyoneering and caving communities and for his family. Not only was he a super charismatic and all-around likable guy, but he gave back to those communities through mentorship, search and rescue, constant explorations of new areas, his back-end programming for RopeWiki, and for being a person who led by example. At his memorial service last week, David Angel led a toast with these words. When tragedies like this occur, a lot of people like to say he died doing what he loved. And I think that's bullshit. He lived doing what he loved. Welcome to episode 55 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. On today's show, we will be having a roundtable discussion about caving, or as some of you may call it, spelunking. And we will get into the differences between those two terms very early in the conversation. This was recorded outside a cafe one night at Caltech with accomplished cavers David Angel, Carl Domanger, Jen Hopper, and the person who orchestrated this coming together of masterminds, the great Jerry Nicholsberg. So we will be covering a multitude of topics involving caving, hopefully everything you would want to know about the activity, including some listener questions of varying qualities. So let us head to Caltech to talk about caving and do stick around at the end so that you can hear David Angel perform his own rendition of the Go Get Outside theme song. My name is David Angel. I have previously been the chair of Southern California Grotto, the vice chair of the Western region of the National Speleological Society. I'm primarily interested in exploration and rescue and photography in terms of caving. I also like to canyoneer and I just started picking up paragliding. And you always wear red shirts except for tonight. I'm surprised you didn't have anything to say about that. Keep my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jen Hopper. I am Assistant Director of Recreation at University of California, Riverside. I am one of the managers of the Cave Research Foundation Sequoia Kings Canyon Project. I'm on the San Bernardino County Cave and Technical Rescue Team, and I have been vice chair in the past of the Southern California Grotto of the National Speleological Society. My name is Jerry Nicholsberg. I'm a caver. I've been caving for 
More than a decade, I've been the chair of the Southern California Grotto. I'm also a cave diver, and I do hiking and climbing and scuba diving as well. My name is Carl Domage. I've been caving for a little bit over 10 years. I've also been a member of the Sierra Madre Search and Rescue Team, and along with that, the Underground Mind rescue team. So that sets up everybody's credentials, solid people who know what they're talking about. So we can thank Jerry for getting this group of people together. Thank you, Jerry. (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) Probably the best way to start this out in case somebody's listening and they are a little bit confused about what we're talking about. I think we should immediately define what exactly caving is in relation to whatever people imagine it is that may not be accurate. And while doing that, explain how it differs from spelunking, if you personally think it differs in any way whatsoever. Who wants to start? Dad pointed a finger at me, so I guess I start. Caving is the activity of going underground in natural caves. There are a variety of kinds of caves lava caves, marble caves, limestone caves, talus caves. Some are submerged in water, others are dry caves. And cavers explore those caves. Sometimes the caves are well known, sometimes we are going into unknown passages. Cavers, as opposed to what cavers call spelunkers, get training so that they can do this activity safely. There are also speleologists who are cavers who are professional scientists and they go into caves studying the animal life in caves, the ecology of the cave, and as well geologists who are studying the life and the development of caves. Very well said, dude. (laughs) A a spelunker is is probably more of a a derogatory term for cavers. It implies that you're unprepared. You don't know how you got there. You probably just brought your, your iPhone light and you know, probably is that a what pack it says in the definition of spelunker? iPhone light, pack of beer. Well, if you look in the dictionary and see the picture of a spelunker, you see them holding up their their iPhone. <laughs> in other words, total noob. And what's interesting is that people who aren't cavers think that spelunker is a more technical term. Yeah but cavers call themselves cavers. Just about every single person that has never heard of caving proudly says spelunker. It's like a word everyone heard at some point, and then they somehow all registered it in their head. I think it was a word that was used by everyone many years ago, and so it was a very respectable way to describe people who went into caves. But as the technology of cave exploration developed, it became a word to distinguish those who were prepared and those who were not prepared. So you've got cavers, you've got spelunkers, and you've got speleologists, kind of three somewhat separate but overlapping categories. And where would you place yourselves in that hierarchy? I'm definitely a recreational caver. A recreational caver. I enjoy exploration. I wouldn't call myself a researcher, but I help out researchers to complete their studies. So Jen is totally a project caver. She'll attack a cave from a more scientific viewpoint and facilitate scientists and also explore it. And I think we, we kind of differentiate them by calling them project cavers. So what do you consider yourself? Canyoneer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely a sport caver. Yeah. David's been a project caver. Don't let him fool you. One characteristic about David, and I would say myself as well, is we both really enjoy taking new cavers into caves and helping them explore and discover for the first time the underground environment and that that in itself is is enjoyable as well as 
just doing sport caving ourselves. Let's talk about that because there are a lot of activities people can get into where they can basically run to the store, buy some stuff, give it a try without getting hurt. And then there are a lot of activities that if people do that, they might injure themselves or kill themselves. And caving would be one of the latter. A lot of people don't know any cavers, so how do those people go about getting involved in that? So definitely find a mentor. Easy way to find a mentor is to find a local caving club. We call them grottos. So you can go on a website, look for your local grotto, and show up and start making friends. It's it's going to be a, a, a longer process than you might think. A lot of times you're, you're going to walk in, nobody's going to know you, they're going to assume that you're never coming back. So you have to prove them wrong. You have to keep coming back. And then finally, they'll start to recognize you and they'll be like, oh, this guy, he keeps coming back. We should take him somewhere good. I remember this story like five years into being a grotto member and I'd been the chair of the grotto at that point. Someone took me to a cave and I asked him, uh, I was just fishing. I was like, when are you taking me to the good one? This gentleman looks at me and uh, says, maybe another 10 years. So <laughs> so you haven't been there yet. <laughs> so I'm still waiting for uh, the Rice Brothers to take me somewhere nice. But maybe one day. Yeah, in Southern California Grotto, I found Jerry. And Jerry took me to quite a few of my first caves. It was really awesome to have a mentor that would be, you know, willing to bring all the rope and show you how to rig it and help you get to the point where you can start mentoring new cavers yourself. So I do find it interesting that you said keep showing up. That would lead me to believe that with this, much like many other things, someone decides, oh, I'm going to give that a try. And more than likely, most people show up once, disappear, never show up again. So is that actually a problem you run into a lot of times? Is it difficult to keep returning members in the grottos? We do see that because one can go canyoneering and, and kind of work up in terms of skills, but you're going canyoneering every weekend, and that's just not so with caving. What I'd suggest is if somebody is interested, there are show caves, caves that are open to the public and they have guided tours, but they also have off-trail tours, uh, sometimes called wild cave tours, and you can get a little bit of that cave experience and see if it's something that you want to invest time in. So it kind of goes back to engagement. Uh, the Grotto has a responsibility to engage new members, but then the new members have a responsibility to encourage engagement. If one side is failing, then the other is going to. What Jerry mentioned about the, the canyoneering in, in Los Angeles, uh, where we are right now, there are local mountains, and you can run up into them and do a canyon in the evening. Super easy. Uh, you could do it any night of the week. So Los Angeles is relatively cave poor, so to speak. We have to drive hours and hours and hours to get to the closest good cave. It makes the barrier to entry, especially um, in cave poor areas, pretty hard for a new member. Like, they'll really have to, like, you know, keep throwing things against the wall and getting your vertical practice outside of a cave. In parts of the country where they go caving after work, engagement is going to be a little easier because you're going to be able to say, you know, I, I can take these new guys caving on a Wednesday. I don't have to devote my entire weekend to going back to a cave that I've been to four times and I'm kind of bored of. The other thing to remember is that a lot of times new cavers, they've never been in a cave. So they don't know how they're going to react once they get inside a cave. I've seen a number of people, yourself included, Jason, <laughs> who are very outdoorsy, loves doing, you know, rock climbing and canyoneering, but... Uh, once they get in the hole, they, they, they piss their pants. Not to say that it's ever happened to you. Not in a cave. Usually <laughs> purposely in a wetsuit, but that's a different conversation. A lot of the caves require uh, vertical entry. 
So you need to have those vertical skills. Dov and Jerry have been really instrumental in teaching new folks who come to the um, Southern California Grotto of the National Speleological Society how to get onto rope and climb up and down using borrowed gear that the grotto has for loan. So you can test it out and get the skills, try out different kinds of gear and see which kind you might want to buy. One thing is that, you know, it sounds like we as cavers put up barriers, This, but it's not an initiation. Rather, when we go into caves with other cavers, uh, we want it to be safe. And though accidents do happen, it's not a, a sport without risk. If they do, it, it becomes much more problematic than if you're in a canyon or on a hike or on a mountain. And so the three people sitting around me have been involved in cave rescue. Maybe they want to talk about the difference of getting someone injured with something relatively minor like a broken arm out of a cave relative to other activities. Yeah, let's talk about that. I agree with Jerry that there is this thought that cavers hide their caves. They don't want to share them with other people. They want to keep people out of them and that there is this huge barrier to entry and you have to be brought into this secret club. Some of that maybe is a fair assessment, but like Jerry was just saying, a lot of that is because of a number of very good reasons. So let's discuss what those reasons are and then also exactly what he said, which is how difficult it is to extract a person if something goes wrong, because a helicopter can't fly in to a cave and get you out. And you cannot call 911. I've been on the San Bernardino County Cave and Technical Rescue Team for 10 years, and I got into that by meeting somebody that was on the team that was very much into canyoneering, same as I was at the time. And I wanted to learn more about rescue and caving and canyoneering, and so I wanted to learn how how it was that you safely moved through a cave with a group of people, and if something did go wrong, how you would get them out of that situation. The San Bernardino County team was formed in uh, 1988 to be the primary team that would serve cave rescue in Mitchell Caverns State Park, which has a, a cave called Cave of the Winding Stair. It's about 300 feet deep. Over time, we've, we've had cave rescues in other caves around Southern California as well. We're the only cave rescue team that's fully dedicated to cave rescue in the state of California. One of the problems with cave rescue is that you have tight spaces, it's cold, it's dark. Most of the caves that you'll go in, you'll eventually get hypothermia. So trying to get somebody with an injury out of a tight space that's dark and wet with hypothermia as an additional risk is one of the scariest things I can think of about caving. We've had somebody in a cave slip and fall on just a simple climb and have an ankle injury, luckily relatively close to the entrance. So we had to figure out how to build a, an anchor and hook him up to an anchor and help him climb up with a belay to the top of the climb with his ankle protected. So it's a series of protecting the injury, making sure that the person is not going to get more hypothermic and getting them out of the cave as quickly as possible. Depending on the injury, small party rescue is often the way to go. So you don't want to necessarily leave the person in the cave and run and get help unless you don't think you can do anything on your own as a team. Yeah, just to add, I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult to actually get to the person that you're trying to rescue. They may be blocking the ingress. There's, there's probably only one way to get to them. And so you're not going to be able to bring a lot of bodies in there. You're not going to be able to move around the person. You basically have one angle to work with in a lot of instances. And so that's what makes it really difficult. Quite frankly, it's a lot easier when the person is unconscious because then you can maneuver their body in a number of different ways. And 
hopefully by the time they reach consciousness, uh, they'll be out of the cave in pain, but at least they'll be out. Unfortunately, in my experience, underground mine rescue member, a lot of our operations are body recoveries. That is people that have already died underground. And what we're there is to bring the family closure uh, and and bring the person out. So there's this perception that cavers are uh, adding a barrier to entry by not telling people where the cave is, we're keeping them secret, you know, we don't want anybody to go in there. And it's not that, it's that we want you to be safe and act in a safe enough manner that you're not going to make one of these rescues happen. And then also other concerns like conservation, I think everybody's had that experience of walking into what was this really beautiful cave. And it's just trashed. Fire pits on the ground, and they've broken off all the formations, and there's graffiti on the walls, and the ceiling, and the ground. And, you know, what creatures may have lived there long fled because of the constant parties. That's another reason that cavers are relatively... They, they play their cards close to their chest as far as caves are concerned, especially the, the nice ones, because, honestly, we are trying to protect these caves for the next generation and the one after that. Having been a recreational caver for long enough, even I've noticed the impact that even my parties have had in caves, you know, like, you know, it's, it's funny because like you, you break a formation at some point, right? You're, you're walking along and it comes out of nowhere and you, you break this little tiny piece of formation off a cave and, and, you know, let, let anybody who hasn't done that cast the first stone, right? Or formation. And, and so it happens to you, right? And, and then all of a sudden you're faced with this, you know, conservational problem. You're like, oh man, like we are being as safe and careful as we possibly can and even we are having an impact on these things and it's similar in diving too where you can be super careful but at some point you're still probably going to have hit a reef and break something Mm -hmm. even if you're trying not to all of this sounds kind of ominous and incredibly dangerous but but i think the bottom line here is that that caving has a danger to it it can be done safely is a lot of fun. We thoroughly enjoy it. And I think that if people are interested in caving, join a grotto and they'll find that cavers are really open and welcoming, but we don't want to do cave rescues. What we want to do is have a great time in a cave during a day or two or a weekend. And so these kind of requirements of getting vertically prepared, of understanding conservation, understanding how to go into the cave and be safe is just part of that. I think a nice sidetrack to take right now since we're kind of headed that direction anyway, is why each of you got interested in in trying caving and how you went about trying it, whether it be your first experience or your first few experiences or whichever it was. We're going to start with you, Carl, and go clockwise. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I got started about 10, 11, maybe 12 years ago. At the time, I owned an outdoor adventure company, and I was really just looking to find a guide, you know, someone that could, you know, take us you know, into a cave so that we can have that experience and, and I can, you know, you know, perhaps put it on my website. So that's what I was looking for. And I joined the uh, San Diego Grotto just temporarily. They were having, I think it was a, a Western conference in San Diego in 2006, I think it was. Me and three of my friends, we, we all signed up with the intent just, you know, to go and check out the caves. And then, of course, I wanted to see if I can find someone that could you know, lead my groups. When I got there, my, my very first cave was, was Lawrence Welk, which is a talus cave. And by my standard now, it's not a great cave, but it was one of the funnest activities I've ever done. The cave itself is just smeared with a lot of graffiti, 
There's broken bottles and glasses. There's, it smells like urine. It's the Stony Point of caving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like Stony Point. But, you know, just, you know, being there underground, crawling around, it was just like, you know, being, well, uh, I guess a, a kid, you know, at the playground. That's the way I felt. But what I did gain from that experience was just how dangerous caves were. And I knew that there was no way that I'm going to be able to lead a group of, of novice recreational spelunkers, you know, through a cave. I also, I guess more significantly, I actually thought that this was a group that I wanted to keep to myself. Up to that point, I had joined a number of outdoor adventure organizations and clubs and introduced elements of, of that, of those particular clubs to my organization. For some reason, I, I just wanted to keep caving to myself just because the people that I met, the responsibility of, of conservation, the dangers involved in caving, uh, I thought that it required much more than I was capable of giving uh, to my members uh, and my organization at the time. But that's how I got started. So I grew up in Virginia, though I didn't do real wild caving while I was in Virginia. Uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, there are a lot of caves, privately owned caves, and you could pay money and go on a wild cave tour. Always really enjoyed that, and everywhere I went, I would kind of seek that out. One day I was in Colorado, and I did a wild cave tour in Cave of the Winds. So this would be about 12, 13 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. The guy who was taking us on this tour, we had candles, went through some interesting squeezes, which I thought was fun, but he kept talking about this grotto. And at the end of it, I said, what's a grotto? He said, these caving clubs, they're all over the place, and they'll teach you how to cave safely, and you can go into caves that are not ones like this, but real wild caves. And that led me to the Southern California Grotto, and uh, that's how I got into doing caving more seriously. I had been doing commercial cave tours probably for about 25 years, which I started about 25 years ago. I had been to Carlsbad Caverns, and I had been to Crystal Cave in Sequoia National Park, and I wanted a little bit more than that. I wanted the exploration factor. I was a climber at the time, so this was probably 2004, 2005, and I was doing big wall climbs in Zion with a colleague of mine. He was running an outdoor program, an outdoor recreation program in Texas, and I was running an outdoor recreation program for a university in California. Once he saw that uh, I had the skills to do some pretty serious technical rope stuff, he invited me out to the Guadalupe Mountains, the Guads, uh, near Carlsbad, and we went and did Sentinel Cave as my first technical cave, <laughs> which, is, which is not one that most people probably start with. <laughs> we took the, we, there were it's two downhill of us. from there. Yeah, right. <laughs> there were two of us. We took 600 feet of rope and we ran out. <laughs> it was a long, hot hike through the Lechuguilla uh, to get to the cave. Multiple rappels down through the cave. There was a horizontal bolted traverse that we had to do to get to one of the drops. And then near the bottom of the cave, we had to tie two of our ropes together and I had to figure out how to do a knot pass in the dark in my first technical cave. And I lived through that, so that was good. <laughs> and I drew the line at doing some free soloing of, uh, of the back part of the cave. I let him do that part. But I was hooked, you know, climbing out. I was fit. I was strong for ascending and things like that from my big wall climbing experience. 
and I just loved it and I wanted to do more. So that's when I came back to, uh, when I got back to California, I joined the Southern California Grotto chapter of the National Speleological Society and just got involved with some of the cavers in, in our local grotto and started doing trips with them and here I am still involved with them. I got my start caving by exploring local gold mines in Los Angeles. We were hiking up to the gold mines and exploring them with a little or no safety margin at first. And slowly we added helmets and more headlamps and less hatchets and shovels. A friend of mine said, hey, this, this guy who knows a lot about mines is involved in the grotto. So we went to the grotto to more or less explore more abandoned mines, but that got me some vertical training. And then I was like, well, hey, why not try exploring these caves? And it was all it took for me to get totally enthused about caves. Caves can have a very technical nature, so they can be simple walks and crawls down to rope work and tight squeezes and sumps and various other things. So let's talk about the challenges and the difficulties that exist in caving that may exist in some other sports and some that are just endemic specifically to caving itself. I just got back from Lilburn Cave, which is a cave in uh, the Sequoia Kings Canyon area. We spent several days caving there. The average temperature of the cave is about 42. So no matter how many layers you wear, you're going to sweat when you're moving and you're going to get cold when you stop. So that's one of the challenges that you don't see as much in many other sports, maybe certain kinds of mountaineering, but then you don't have the dark and the water that you have to crawl through in the tight spaces and pulling your pack along behind you or pushing it in front of you like you do in in a lot of caves. So that's one of the things I would say is different than other sports. Yeah, sometimes your clothing layer is mud. So a lot of the things I really enjoy about caving are the more dangerous parts. You'll have climbs in caves, and there are people who specialize in doing climbs in caves just like that. Like, you know, the only way to explore any more of this cave is to climb up 100 feet right here and you know aid it or climb it as best as you can also uh we like to say don't step on the black so you'll be stemming along this canyon passage for for lack of a better description and you'll have you know 40 feet of exposure below you with one foot on either wall so that's a lot of fun and can be really kind of exciting as as a novice caver. The black is the chasm below you. Right, the darkness, right? Don't step on the darkness is what you mean? Don't step on the darkness. So in addition to doing dry caving, I'm also a cave diver. So the first thing about cave diving is don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But if, if if you're going to do it, one of the unique things is that you're in a cave but you're totally dependent on life support. So you have to be prepared if there's any problem and problems do occur to solve that problem then and there underwater because you can't just come to the surface. You may be hours away from getting out of the cave and so you'll have to solve that problem. And that's why in cave diving, it's critically important that you uh, are not only trained, but you practice and and you think through all of those dangers. Uh, It's a beautiful sport, but it uh, has its own dangers. Base jumping is one of the most dangerous things you can do, but I've heard cave diving referred to as the most dangerous activity. It's dumb. It's a boneheaded idea. I don't know why anyone would do that. Well, Carl, we should go cave diving. It's all about margins, right? And the the more extreme sports have less margin for error. So Right. So there are two outcomes with to a cave dive. Successful and 
somebody else is coming to get you. Oh, there's there's bent, right? Uh, there's that, yes, but but that depends on the depth uh, of, of the cave. But so why do it? Some of the most beautiful places that I've been to on Earth, and I've been to some really beautiful places, have been underwater. In the cenotes, in the in uh, the Yucatan, been in rooms in caves that were just absolutely amazing and pretty hard to hold a candle to that anywhere else. But David is right, the margins are small. So you've got to do a lot of risk mitigation in order to do it safely. So that kind of brings up water and air in terms of dry caving as well. You have this water problem potentially in caves where there's a river running through the cave and all of a sudden you have a flash flood come through there, you're in a whole heap of trouble. You know, you can be exploring a cave where you're, you know, you're floating through the water in a passage and the, the ceiling is where your nose is. And so you're, you know, kind of cruising along. And if your buddy makes the, the water level rise just a little bit, you could be in big trouble. So you kind of approach these things slowly. You get more and more comfortable with it. You practice it. You try not to make any fatal mistakes. For instance, if you were to dive a sump, so say you're in a passage with lots of water and you dive to down under the ceiling up to the other side, that sump might not have air on the other side. It might have some combination of atmosphere that's that's higher in CO2 that's going to kill you immediately. So you need to worry about bad air as, as well as the water problem. I'm going to take it back to a slightly more positive note. <laughs> <laughs> Doom and gloom. <laughs> I think one of the cool things about caving is you can stand somewhere on or in the earth that no one else has ever seen. And there are not very many places like that anymore. <laughs> Most everywhere has been explored. In my opinion, underground or underwater under the ocean are two of the last frontiers of exploration in this in this day and age that's why jerry likes to do both at once right yeah and if you really want to get somewhere that nobody else is ever gonna go go cave diving but also in in caves you can go into caves that have been explored into really incredible places but not very many people have been there and so you have an experience that is maybe not unique in the history of the world, but is something that you're just not going to have otherwise. And that makes caves pretty special. So let's talk about some of those other challenges, some of the less dangerous ones like squeezes and rappelling and other things that can be part of caving that you need to be trained for and you need to be prepared for. It's really knowing your limits. It's practice starting at the beginning, not starting over your head like, <laughs> like maybe I did. But it's knowing your limits, going with people that can teach you from the beginning or from wherever your starting level is and take you up from there. You can get all your questions answered. You can figure out what works and what doesn't work. And don't push yourself beyond the limits of what you know you can come back from. So say you're in a squeeze. If you're the smallest person and you're going in the smallest passage, you need to realize that there isn't anybody that's going to be able to come in and get you out. So maybe you shouldn't try to do that squeeze. You know, maybe you can save it for another day or or move on to another part of the cave that's not so tight. It's looking at the situation and assessing your resources, whether it's your own resources, um, the gear you have, the temperature of the cave, the other people that are with you, and making a decision based on all of those together. When I first started in caving, one of the things that I practiced was making sure that I was not the largest person in our group. <laughs> And that whoever was going to go through a tight squeeze was larger than I was. And if I see them get through it, then I figure that I, I know that there's some way that I can contort my body to get through that 
that squeeze. There's this one cave that I have been to four times now. The first three times, I just looked at the entrance. Kind of like put myself in it a little bit, said no, and immediately came back out. It's a vertical squeeze, so I knew that I could get in. I wasn't sure that I could get out. And not wanting to be on the receiving side of a search and rescue mission, kept coming back to this thing. I I took friends to this cave. I said, here's the hole. I don't know what's in there. (laughs) I hear it's pretty cool. I've never seen it. Um, and then, yeah, the, the third time that I went back to that cave, I took off my cave suit, I took off my sweater, and... Naked caving. I didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah, if you move your body in just the right way, there was no problem. I just slithered down into that hole, and it was no big deal. It's interesting with squeezes, there's a lot of geometry involved. So you look at them and say, okay, I can't get through that. And then you start thinking about them, and, and the one that David's talking about is, is one uh, of that sort and thinking about, well, how would I get through if I actually could? It, you know, it's a bit like being on a wall rock climbing and, and, and you say, I have no idea how to make the next move, but you start thinking about it and thinking about how you're going to do it and, and oftentimes you can find out how to do it and figure it out. But sometimes you just can't get through and one of the things that, that I've noticed amongst cavers is, for example, if I say, I can't get through that, Everybody's okay with that. People may say, well, why don't you try a little bit? Be sure. But if you say, no, I can't get through, that's fine. That's fine. We'll leave you, Jerry. And and there I am behind the squeeze. Yeah, I would imagine in a cave, it's not not the place for peer pressure. If you're pressuring someone to get in a situation that may lead to them either injuring themselves or having some sort of psychological breakdown, you're introducing the possibility of requiring a rescue or something of that nature. Right. You have to leave all that at the at the entrance. Yeah, getting stuck is no fun. And I think everyone here at some point has gotten stuck in a cave. You really just have to kind of stop, slow down, pause for a minute to collect yourself, and then try to reverse your your last few maneuvers. But it's a scary feeling, especially when the walls are pretty tight, like around your chest or abdomen area. So does anybody have a good getting stuck story or the first time they got stuck story? Or is anyone here presently or previously claustrophobic other than me? So it's a matter of increments, right? Like you're a little bit claustrophobic and you get into a hole and you're like, this is a little uncomfortable, but your friends are doing it. So you're like, all right, I'll do this. And you you climb in and usually everything's cool. For me, I don't get that nervous about getting stuck in a squeeze. The thing that really makes me nervous is someone getting stuck behind me while I'm in a squeeze too. And then I can't get them unstuck and then we're both stuck and yeah. So I'll freak out if somebody's like two inches behind me and like up on my shoes while I'm trying to get through something. I'll be like, back off, give me a little space, give me a little space. I'm the same. When I first started caving, I got a little nervous and I had to sort of calm myself if there was a caver in front and a caver behind me. And I didn't have an easy way that I could crawl out really fast if I wanted to. It went away over time. Just uh, exposure, I think. Exposure and practice and becoming more comfortable and more confident in your skills and in what it is that you're doing and and trusting your team and trusting the the people that you're with as well. Unfortunately, I have, I guess, the reverse experience. When I first started caving, I was fearless. I'd I'd jump in a hole. I'd I'd go and I'd explore wherever I could if, if I 
you know, thought I could fit, if I could work out a problem, I was happy to find the solution. Now, however, I find that caves actually terrify me now. <laughs> I have actually, I have some, some lung issues. Now when I go into caves, I, I, I'm very conscious of the dusty air that I'm breathing. When I go through a, a tight squeeze, I'm, I'm very conscious of, of how close the walls are to my face. And for some reason, I can't explain it, but that actually makes me panic. The way that I've been able to overcome it in my last few caves was actually to close my eyes or turn off my headlamp. If I can't see the walls, see how close they are, oddly, I, I'm a little bit more calmed. I've gotten myself into some tricky situations, not by following somebody, but by thinking I was following somebody. And you'll be in this situation where you're like, they went through there? It's like a Coke bottle. Like, all right, all right, let's do this. And, and you get about halfway into it and you're like hopelessly stuck and there's like really sharp stuff and you can't back out and you realize they didn't go this way. Why am I going this way? And then how did you get out of it? He's still there right now. <laughs> this is his spirit joining us for the evening. Inch by inch. Yeah, I mean, you, and so you're all tensed up. You're all like frightened and you have to force yourself to relax because the the more relaxed you are the smaller your muscles are going to be so if you can relax and only use the one muscle that's going to get you out of that problem that's totally the way to go so if you're trying to get through something same thing applies like if you're trying to get your big leg like really nervous chest through a, a big squeeze then relax breathe out being really relaxed push with your feet don't use your arms your arms are going to make your chest bigger so, yeah, just push with the muscle that's not the thing that is constricted. I notice Jerry doesn't have anything to say about this conversation because he doesn't get scared of anything. Well, negative on the claustrophobia. <laughs> You're the opposite of claustrophobic? Maybe. I mean, the first time I was in a, not a terribly long squeeze, but a squeeze that went around a corner. And I looked at it and I said, we're going through there. Uh, okay. Once I was in the squeeze moving along, that, this, is, this is actually really cool. But there are squeezes that I can't get through. I guess one that I tried when I was actually underwater cave diving, that may be the scariest one because some of my gear got caught up. But Is it the I, type where you had to remove your tank and push it through before you? I did, I, I did not, but some of the gear that I had got caught on something, and, and so I had to back out and figure out how to, how to unhook it and, and get out. But the claustrophobia, not so much thinking that I was going to stay there a long time, that was not so fun. But, the, you know, there are squeezes that I can't get through, and I look at them, try, I do everything that... David just said, relax, breathe out. Upper body's completely relaxed. Boom, can't get through it. We have one in, in one of our favorite caves. It's named after another member of our grotto, and some of us can get through it and some can't. I think I've tried four times and now have given up. Have you gotten through that, David? Is that rubies? That one no, damn blade, that blade. One blade. <laughs> that one blade. It's the Baker squeeze. Mm. Okay. So we just talked about everyone dealing with themselves getting stuck or dealing with their own fears of tight spaces. But what about others in your group? Have any of you had to deal with other people suddenly panicking, people being stuck, or people being stuck, like you were saying, David, before or after you, which then traps you? So I usually make it into a game. I'm like, hey, uh, see that squeeze right there? Some pretty cool stuff behind it. So you talk to people like they're in kindergarten? Yeah, usually they'll take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> some of us don't. <laughs> but there is some cool stuff behind it, right? And you're like, well, okay, so you've got to climb up eight feet, get through that hole in the ceiling that's about the size of your chest. So it's pretty comical, actually, to, to watch this happen. But 
yeah, they'll uh, they'll climb up and uh, pop through, and they'll be like, oh wow, starlight yeah, this room. is totally worth it. Definitely <laughs> talking about the starlight room. Huh? Starlight room is wonderful, but that reminds me of when someone did that to me in the Guaz, and she said, oh, it's really cool in here. Come in here, and I squeezed in. And by the time I got in, the cave had ripped my shirt completely off me. And <laughs> Jen was sitting there looking at me, laughing uncontrollably. You know, someone did that to me in the mother load. Thanks, Jen. Wow. Sometimes I forget how small I am, I guess. Apparently, Jen likes to get men naked in caves. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> That's what we're learning right now. You don't have a Jen getting you naked in a cave story, Carl? I have not feel had left that out? experience, no. <laughs> but have any of you had that experience where you have a person? Because you've got to kind of vet these people before, and you don't really know how they're going to react until they're there. And I know, especially, for instance, you, Carl, you've brought people through caves who this is their first experience ever. Have you run into that situation before, and how'd you deal well, with it? Well, people do get stuck, but it's usually momentary. If I'm leading the cave, leading people through a cave, then I can forewarn them and tell them, you know, hey, you know, here comes a tight squeeze. Here's how you want to attack it. And so I can kind of direct people through it, and then they would direct the person behind them, you know, through that same squeeze. So I haven't had an issue where someone has gotten stuck for say more than a minute so i haven't had that experience so i did i had a person on one of my trips he was stuck for i want to say more like five minutes at that point it's a it's a matter of managing anxiety because anxiety is starting to rise you know the person who was stuck was starting to freak out i mean for good reason right and he's only getting more stuck and and you're also managing your resources you're saying okay so we gotta get the smallest guy to help extricate the person who's stuck because you know you can't even get to him to help him properly but really it's all situational and if you can manage the anxiety and kind of coach them through whatever their problem is you know they're like stuck on something right so if you can coach them through that problem that you may have seen before you can help remove clothing or you know use your water to lubricate them to get them through something if you have Jen with you she's very good at helping men remove their clothing in caves (laughs) apparently I can do it with girls too (laughs) (laughs) we had we had a student once who uh, was scared about the cave being too cold, and so she wore a bunch of layers, and it was a cave that had a, a little keyhole that you had to climb through. And when she went through, she had on so many layers that she got stuck partway through with half her body on one side and half on the other side. And we had people removing her clothing on her lower half so she could get from her waist down through the hole. It was her boyfriend who was removing her clothing, so it was all good. And he kept some layers on. It was all fine, and she got through no problem. I have been on a cave rescue, though, where there was a man stuck in a cave for 19 hours. I was all geared up and ready to go in and help coming into the cave from the top, and he was stuck right near the end of the cave. I was about to go in and help out with the rescue and other members of our search and rescue team were able to they brought in a board and a car jack and put that in the crevice part of the cave which was in a stream below him and they jacked up the board enough to push him up into the wider part of the cave again and they were able to pull him out so it had a happy ending we're we're talking about all these different challenges and for people who haven't really been in the caves i think what they're picturing in their head is probably highly inaccurate right now because they're used to seeing photographs of caves heavily illuminated and you can see all the different texture in the rock 
and you can see a hundred feet across this cave. And they're maybe even thinking of situations in their life where maybe something similar happened above the surface and everyone can see what's happening. So let's talk about the fact that everything we've discussed so far is in the dark with only headlamp light and just how much visibility you sincerely have at any given time and how that affects what you're able to do. So before we do that, we've been talking about squeezes and people getting stuck. And we have members of our grotto who don't like that, but they love caves. And there are plenty of caves that you can go into that do not require vertical skills and do not require squeezes and are still very enjoyable experiences. So it's not just kind of exclusively squeezing through small spots that constitutes what caving is about. I know that you've told me I should join the grotto, and we've had that exact conversation where I've told you I'm claustrophobic, I'm not going to join, and you're like, well, look, half of the group is claustrophobic, half of the group is scared of heights. You're not scared of heights, so you can do the vertical caves and don't do the tight squeezes. Yes. Yes. And that when, is a conversation we've when, had. When are you joining? <laughs> we'll see. So who wants to talk about the dark? Kind of like driving along a canyon road in the dark with your headlights on. You know, you just see what's in front of you, and, you know, the road coming up ahead, sometimes you see a little more, especially if the cliffs are white. Like, you see a lot. But if those cliffs are lava, then you're not going to see so much. And you, you want to bring some friends with lots of headlamps, with some, some real firepower on them. And, uh, and then everybody gets into a, uh, a headlamp arms race, and everybody's run on high, and you're like, wow, I can see this whole room. This is great. It's, it's a good problem to have, right? Like, if you have a room that's so big that it takes six buddies to light it up, that's a great cave. I don't know of too many of that, like in California, at least. But a, a lot in Belize. There are some very nice places in the world where you can see some beautiful beautiful caves that that you're going to need some serious firepower in your headlamp for california not a problem you're going to have so much well I, here's here's a question talking about light and especially since we know jerry is probably the biggest diver of the group would you compare the visibility in a cave to the type of visibility you get when diving in scuba diving it's almost like you are in a sphere of light and everything else is darkness and that sphere of light moves with you and that's all you can see at any given time. Do you find caving to remind you of that or feel totally different? No, it, it's totally different. When you're scuba diving, even, even if you get quite deep, uh, you're still going to have some ambient light around you. And you just don't have that in a cave. You have no ambient light. The only light is what you bring with you. So it's, a, it, it's quite a different experience. It's similar to diving at night where all you can see is what your light is pointing at. Yeah, if there's not a moon out or bioluminescence. And yeah, on a dark night, it's, it's very similar, right? But that assumes that you're, you're in a big room in a cave because most of the time you're only going to be able to see two or three feet in front of you because there's, you know, you're in a passage and it, you know, the passage turns or twists. And when you go into you know, one of the larger rooms, chances are your, your headlamp is going to be able to, to see, you know, all four walls uh, and the ceiling in that room. One thing that is similar is if you are scuba diving in low visibility, you're only seeing what's around you. The rest of the water column may be uh, illuminated, but you, you don't see any features. And, and that's similar, as Carl just said, that when you're in a cave, you're seeing that which is around you and the rest is not illuminated. Mm -hmm. So that is one similarity to scuba diving. A lot of people have been outside in the dark. Not a, necessarily a lot of people go into small corridors 
in the dark, in complete darkness. Because I have done a number of, of tour caves, and every single one of them has the, hey, everyone, let's experience real darkness moment. And that's not something most people have experienced until they've gone on some tour cave. There's not one single photon down here. <laughs> that's right. Oh, so I, so I did post asking people questions. There's some great questions. Yeah, there. some things that There's people want to ask. And yeah, yeah, like I don't know what the hell a caver smash is. is <laughs> that's not coming up. I don't think anybody, anybody ever heard of the caver smash? No, you sure mentioned that. No. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? I can cut anything I want out of here. I can say whatever <laughs> I want. It doesn't have to be in the show. All right, so and we actually have spoken about a lot of the things they've asked, but one of the things that came up from a couple of people, not necessarily worded as well as I'm about to word it, is dealing with human waste. So if you're in a cave for a long period of time, at some point there's going to be some need to excrete substances from your body, and how do you deal with that? It depends on the cave. If you're in a cave that has a stream flowing through it, normally you can urinate in the stream and it'll flow out of the cave and become diluted. If you're not in an area that has a stream near it, you pee into a bottle and carry the bottle of pee out with you. One of my favorite pieces of gear is for only half of the population for women. It's called the Freshette. Here's the product. Wait, wait, is this is this just like the Go Girl and the and the what what were the other ones called? Lady J. Oh wow, you, you know all the ones I've I never know. heard of. Yes. I'd just like to mention I have a similar piece of gear. <laughs> so the Freshette is a funnel where you can uh, leave your pants on and urinate into a bottle as a woman uh, without exposing yourself, and it's awesome, and everyone should have one. It's good for not only caving, but all kinds of outdoor are, activities. Are you a sponsored caver? I should Freshet? be, huh? <laughs> Freshette sponsor your caving experiences? It's about $25 and totally worth your money. <laughs> if we go to your Instagram page right now, is it just you with the Freshette in different no. caves? No, it's not. <laughs> okay, so that's how you handle that. What about, well, what about everything else? You try to go before you get into the cave. If you have to defecate in a, in a cave, you would want to bring that out with you so sacrifice a dry bag or some sort of you know heavily wrapped aluminum foil and ziploc combination and carry that out we don't want to leave our waste i've carried a wag bag into a cave before yeah Um, i've never had to use it but i know someone who has and i think it was quite effective (laughs) yeah i I always carry a wag bag with me never used one but always have it so just to take a quick survey you know out of the five people here has anyone ever used a wag bag in a cave Uh, uh, just in general just in in general general? yeah sure yeah okay 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 because you all said you've never done it in a cave and i'm just checking yeah so probably all of us have used them you've never used it all right so we're all going to set up a trip where we go with david out to the wilderness, so and he can just, use a wag bag for the first time. We're just going to hold him down until... <laughs> we hold him down until he can't stop. <laughs> I will say that most of the time, if you're going to be in a cave for eight hours or so, you're probably sweating and you know moving through it, and you, you tend to kind of sweat out the urge, I think, for number ones anyway. You know Terry, Carl. I don't know if anyone else here knows Terry. And Terry has a... You I, know Terry? I know you Terry, know Terry? Yes. So he told me a great cave excrement story. Do you know the story that I'm talking about? I don't you think so. You might know it better than me because I don't remember it particularly well. But what I do recall is he was bringing a group of teenagers. I think it was through Pinnacles, mm-hmm. the same cave that we shot that time. And one of them had not gone before and could not control himself, 15-year-old kid. And at some point, about halfway through the cave, shit his pants, and they just had to continue on 
until they got back to the entrance with this with this poor kid That's and a everyone problem. else. He was at least last, <laughs> crawling through the cave last. Crawling through that exit? So I think a very, very valuable lesson here is, yes, bring a wag bag whether you think you need it or not, David Angel. Any other waste stories people want to share or valuable information about human waste that people should know about? I did hear a story about someone who lost a cave bag uh, through a hole in a cave. You know, they lost their entire bag, dropped it, went back to get it a few months later. And it was one of those bags that forms an airtight seal. Uh, they finally opened up this bag, apparently, and smelled like, well, hell. Because the, uh, the pee bottle had ruptured oh. over those months. And, uh, yeah, just festered in terrible, terrible smell. So this is a tangent, but I'll throw it out here for a moment. I'm reading Packing from Mars, the Mary Roach book that's all about the lesser-known sides of space travel. And there's a lot of information about dealing with human waste in outer space. And however bad you think you might have it in a cave, it is far superior to what astronauts, our space heroes, have had to contend with. Many of them have spent a week or so in space, mostly covered in their own urine, if not their own feces. And apparently also sometimes floaters just magically appear and you have to hurry up and capture them with a napkin before they can cause trouble in the spacecraft. So just keep that in mind next time you're crapping into a bag or thinking you have it bad because you're pissing into a bottle. It would be worse on an expedition where you're underground for several weeks and then you have to deal with it in other ways than just carrying it all out with you. Let's talk about that. Are any of you involved in cave expeditions and how do they differ from your average day cave trip? The expeditions that I've been involved in, we go in for the day. So I haven't camped in a cave before. But then how do they differ just from your other trips into caves? What sort of things have you done on these expeditions? Have they been exploratory? Have they been science related? Yes, mostly exploratory. We take in instruments that measure the uh, distance azimuth and inclination between different stations, so different points on the walls or the floor of the cave. And you can use those measurements to make a map of the cave. And on the expeditions that I've gone on, when we can, we enter all the data into various programs when we get back in the evening and create the map, or the line plot anyway, of the where the cave goes as we go. So then we have a map to lead us through the parts of the cave that were previously unexplored, and we measure it and survey it as we go and create the map as we go. One of the questions someone had asked online, and maybe it doesn't pertain to any of you, maybe it does, but speaking about expeditions, I think might be an appropriate place for this question, is they were asking, how do you go about discovering new cave structures? Like, how would you find an unexplored cave? And then what would you go about doing to begin exploring it? There are several methods. One method that we use on expeditions to the Yucatan Peninsula, to Quintana Roo, the state of Quintana Roo in Mexico, is LIDAR. So you can fly a plane over the area and you use the the LIDAR scans of the land which can see through the foliage and it can see where there are sinkholes and where there are low places and you can follow the trend of those sinkholes and many of those have caves connecting them. So that's one method. Another is ridge walking. So if you know that there's uh, limestone or marble or other geology in the area where caves would be commonly formed. You can just walk along the areas that you think are the most likely to have caves 
and I've been on another expedition in a different part of Mexico in the Sierra Negra, a few hours from Mexico City, and we had teams switch off in which one team would go out and ridge walk and mark all of the pits or the caves that they thought might continue, and then the next day another team would come out and rappel down into the pits to explore them. And we would switch off that way every day until we saw we found a cave that went. So in this expedition, we dropped the pit on the, on the second day we were there. It was very remote. It was three hours from Mexico City to get to the base of the area we were going to explore, three hours to hike to base camp. So we set up our camp, and then it was another three hours to hike to the place where the caves were. And all of this was high elevation, up to about 9,000 feet in elevation in a cloud forest with lots of lechuguilla and stickery plants and fog and rain and, and uh, rolling limestone chunks with sharp edges everywhere. But we found a cave that became the uh, focus of the whole expedition. And it was a vertical cave, 90-foot pit that had a window in it. I climbed up a log and threw my leg over the window and looked down and I didn't see anything at all. It was just darkness, so I threw a rock. And it was about 70 feet to the bottom, so we repelled that pit. There was a window, and that led to another 100-foot pit, and there was a window. And so we called the cave Las Ventanas, the Windows Cave. And that's the cave that the whole expedition worked on the weeks that we were there. We got to just over 900 feet in the end. The most challenging part was all of the uphill hiking at high elevation, the weather with the cloud forest. Um, I ended up getting hypothermia several times, bushwhacking through the forest, chopping our way through with machetes to build our own trail, uh, which was easy to get lost on it in the dark when you're coming down at the end of the day, and bivouacking at the cave entrance. Um, we had to use a puddle inside a cave where we had to crawl through a bunch of black flies to get to the puddle and scoop our water and then boil <laughs> it. <laughs> and then carrying all the bolts and the, and the drills and the ropes and everything up there to do this 900 foot, you know, vertical series of pits. That's, you know, that's that project caving cool. right there. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a great trip. It was very difficult. I trained for three or four months um, beforehand, and I was glad I did because I was the weakest person on the team. <laughs> I assume for something like that, where you have drop after drop, you're going to need to leave a rope rigged yes. for each of those drops. But before you get there, you're not really sure how many drops to anticipate. So had your team brought enough rope, or did you have to turn back around to retrieve more at some we point? We always had to go back down. The reason we went back down was to get more rope. In, back up, get more, come yep. back. Yep, and then go up and bivy for a couple of days so you can do two, ca two days of caving before you come back down, take a rest day, cook for the rest of the group that's out ridge walking or, or uh, rigging the rest of the drops, and then switch off and go back up again. So for the rest of you, have any of you done any cave explorations? And if not, why are you a coward? <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've been on two, one in the Philippines and one in Central America, in both cases, did not sleep in the cave. We were going into the caves for uh, exploration and mapping. So yes, you have. You're not so a coward. Yes. You have anything else to tell us about it? Any exciting occurrences that you're like, nah, and, it was lame. Too much time spent mapping, not enough time squeezing through holes and losing air tanks. Well, I've done both of those, but those, those, <laughs> that's, that's a different question. I'm a baby expedition caver. I went on my first expedition this summer, or spring, in Belize. We pushed the cave. We found some really 
beautiful places and uh, some environments that didn't have quite as much oxygen as you might want. And we're going back again next year. Were there any parts that you personally explored where someone hadn't been in there before you? I definitely set foot in places that no other human had ever been. So what was that experience like? Because if you're if you're going through a passage and say it's it's shrinking and it's getting smaller and you know other people have gone that way and verified that there's something further ahead, you're going to have a certain amount of confidence. But if you don't know what's ahead, does that change the way you approach it? This cave wasn't scary in the way you're <laughs> maybe pushing it, but yeah, you're you're always thinking to yourself like, hey, nobody's been here, uh, what do I need to worry about? And in that case, it was like atmosphere and, you know, what am I walking on? Like, is that mud? What's under the mud? Hmm. But yeah, in general, felt relatively safe. Okay. But it depends. The, the reason I ask that is whenever you, you go into tour caves or whatever, they'll always point out some passageway that, that just continues to become smaller and smaller. And they'll say, oh, this person came down at 14 when they discovered the cave and no one else had found it and crawled back there with a candle and some matches until they found where, it, where they could no longer crawl any further. That's why I ask that question. I'm wondering if, if any of you have had that experience where... You have to squeeze through something, and you don't know that you'll be able to pop out anywhere else. Yeah, so I, I did that in Belize. It was a cave that had been very well mapped, and in fact, it was a tourist cave. Mm -hmm. But the group that I was with was the group that a decade before had mapped the cave, so we had free run of the cave. We got back to a point in the cave, and there had been a collapse, and, and I went through the collapse. A little bit of a squeeze, and then climbed up and into passage that no one had ever been in before. That was a pretty amazing experience. The next year they went back to map it and the passage had completely collapsed. So I was kind of happy that I got out <laughs> when, when I did, but going into a cave that no one had really been in before is, is actually pretty amazing. Speaking of collapses, I think that's probably one of the other reasons for people who are inexperienced to perhaps stay out of caves without other trained explorers because there can be collapses and perhaps if they do have a map maybe that map has changed right if there have been collapses since it was previously mapped so one of the questions people ask and i haven't forgotten carl that you haven't answered the previous question yet <laughs> is someone asked if any of you have ever been in a cave when there was an earthquake or i would stretch that to a collapse of any type or a flash flood, and if so, how that was handled. But Carl still has to answer if he's ever explored a cave or if he's a coward. No, I'm, I, I'm definitely a coward. I don't want to. I don't want to go anywhere that no one else has been before. Besides, it's, it's all new to me, so <laughs> that's what counts. Getting to your question regarding caving while and while there's an earthquake. I actually don't think that there's that much risk because a cave has been there for many, many hundreds of thousands of years, and they're still there. They're anchored, you know, to a point, I would think. Where I would be concerned is, is in a, a man-made mine shaft. Those do collapse. Maybe other folks have other experiences. Having never been underground during an earthquake, I think I'd be similarly worried. I have had far more rocks fall on me in caves than mines. But I think you're right. I think caves or mines are inherently a little more unstable. 
So I think the answer is it depends. I agree. It depends on the cave. I was training in a cave with my search and rescue team a few years ago. And it's a cave in California, and it's sort of known for being a little unstable. We were practicing hauling a litter up through a vertical section. And we had a litter attendant, and half our team was down below that vertical section. As soon as we started the haul from the anchor that I had built um, in the ceiling just above the drop, a rock came down. It was about baseball-sized rock. The litter attendant was right there. I believe we had somebody in the litter as well, a live human in the litter. And because of that small rock falling, we immediately stopped the practice and we got everybody out of the cave and we got all the gear out of the cave. And as we were shuttling the gear between the entrance and where the drop was, everybody was already either out or or beyond the vertical drop. One of my team members took a stick and just kind of poked the ceiling gently with a stick. And the whole ceiling collapsed and covered up that vertical drop. So had that ceiling fallen before that, half our team would have been trapped inside the cave. So it can happen, um, and you just need to be aware of your surroundings and make that decision whether you're going to keep going in an unstable environment if you do notice that it's it's looking a little sketchy or if you start to see things fall. So a lot of it depends on what the cave is made out of. So if you're going through the cave and you see a lot of breakdown, which is is rock fall, particularly from the ceiling, you would be a little more cautious than, you know, if it's a more clean passage. So we're talking a lot about collapses, but floods are also a concern. Has that ever been an issue for any of you, or have you just taken steps to avoid that being a concern? Carla and I were in a cave in New Mexico that's known to flood, and a rainstorm came up. It was a concern, so we got out fast. <laughs> How do you know that a rainstorm had arrived? Is it because the water level became began to rise? Because if, if you're deep enough, you have no idea, right, what the weather we, outside is like. Right. So we were not. This was. This is a very mazy cave with some 27 entrances. Mm-hmm. So we were never that far from an entrance. Oh, okay. We would come out one and go into another, and then we saw the rain clouds coming across the the countryside and decided we'd seen enough. It was kind of like musical chairs, trying to find the entrance before the rain would start. Right. Can we do this before the rain starts? Yeah, we can do this one. So there's an interesting flush cycle in one of the caves in California. San Diego? Negative. No? Okay. That flush cycle will, uh, during the right amount of rain, fill up a room, and then when the room, somewhat full, will flush out, and then it'll fill back up, and they'll flush out kind of an interesting little geologic wonder. There's a study being done or getting ready to be done by the Cave Research Foundation in the future which will look at uh, the ebb and flow of this particular cave and the stream that runs through it. The theory is that it's kind of like the pipe in under your sink that has a u-shape. There's something similar under the cave where that u-shape plugs with sand and once the head on the back end of it reaches a certain pressure, it'll flush that sand out and a lot of water will come out of the cave at the same time. But before that, it can build up in the room behind. So that's a future study that we'd like to, to test. So one of the things I'd like us to discuss now, and we've actually covered a lot of the questions that people had to ask because, as David said, some of them are asinine. (laughs) But one of the things that we haven't really talked about that I think would be worthwhile discussing now is there's a great variety in the types of caves you can do. And, And Jerry, you mentioned some of that early on when you were explaining what caving is. And all of you don't just hang around in California doing local caves. Some of you have traveled internationally to do caves other places. So let's discuss a little bit 
that variety and what you experience in other places and the different types of caves that they have there. All right, the thing I love most about California caving is the variety. We have to drive four hours to get to a cave from Los Angeles, right? But there is wondrous variety in our caves. Like Jerry mentioned, you know, there's marble caves, granite caves, boulder caves, lava tubes. Yeah, what about even outside of California? What about other portions of the U.S. or in other countries? Well, I guess what I'm saying is... Is you're saying just stay in California? No, I'm saying uh, move to Tennessee, Alabama, or Georgia and get some some real awesome big monster borehole drops. The, The thing we don't have in California are monster pits. But we have just about everything else in, in terms of the variety. One of my favorite places is Quintana Roo, uh, Mexico. It's about an hour south of Cancun, uh, where we've done some caving. I've been there on five different expeditions. The caves are warm, and there are lots of entrances and skylights. They're beautifully decorated. They have lakes with crayfish and catfish and there are centipedes and salamanders, and they're not very deep, and they're not very technical. It's easy caving with flat floors, not much bending. They can be 300 feet wide, and they go on forever. And it's one of my favorite places to go. The one thing that we haven't mentioned about California caving is we also have sea caves. And sea caves, some of them you can explore just by walking into them at low tide, and, and others you dive into, and the sea caves here are really quite beautiful. As far as international, I uh, went to the Philippines caving. Caves there are, are really beautiful and long and highly decorated uh, limestone caves, at least the ones that I explored. You also were mentioning cenotes in, in the Yucatan earlier. That's going to be a different experience than the sea caves here in California. Right. The, the caves that I dove in the Yucatan are cenotes. They're underground rivers, mm-hmm. so they're not sea caves. Right, and they're freshwater, correct? Some of them are, are freshwater. Some of them are a combination of freshwater and saltwater or brackish water, and there's a line between mm-hmm. the two because they're di- the waters have different weights. And as you go through that line, it's called a, a helicline. And it's kind of like swimming through, visually swimming through Vaseline. It gives you this really strange optical feeling as you go through it. And, and some of the caves there, you can go up and down through the fresh water to salt water, back and forth as you go through the cave. As Jen said, the caves in... The Yucatan are relatively shallow. The water is warm, and they're really quite beautiful. All right, so now we're going to get to a question that falls in that asinine category, but but I'm going to ask it anyway. So this is Carl's question. (laughs) (laughs) So this question was, we'll see if, if anyone has an answer for this. If you find treasure in a cave, who has the rights to it? <laughs> so one of one of my um, favorite caves is the Lost Soldiers Cave. The story goes that a soldier in like 1910 or so fell down a hole and and, and got lost and injured in in this cave and spent the next few days crawling around and he he, he got to the point where he was gonna just commit suicide. So he took out his gun puts it to his forehead and then he decides no screw this and he throws the gun deeper into the cave and it's a good thing for that because uh, a few days later his troop finds him and they, and they rescue him i guess one of the, the mysteries of the lost soldier cave is what happened to the gun and so every time i go into that cave i'm always <laughs> i know i'm not going to find anything but i'm always looking for that doggone gun that usually means that you know, I'm sticking my hand 
you know, in different holes in the, in the, uh, or cracks in the floor. I don't know why I brought this up, but no, there are no treasures in, in, in caves. And the treasures are the views you see and the experiences you have. You should have. not bring anything out of the cave. Everything should stay in the cave. So it belongs to the cave. It belongs to the cave. But if you find that gun... <laughs> you mean there's no ancient pirate treasure just waiting to be discovered in caves and claimed by the U.S. government? I guess not. All right, so I think we're going to get pretty close to wrapping this up because we've gone through all the basic things we should talk about, and we've gone through even some of the asinine questions that Dav was probably hoping I wasn't going to ask. One of the ways I think we could go ahead and start heading towards wrapping it up is... Like, I don't want to ask that goofy question like, what's your favorite kind of cave? But if there is a type of cave that stands out to you as kind of superlative or more interesting than other varieties of caves that you go into, like if you had your option right now and we could go to any cave, teleport there right now and explore it, what what sort of cave or particular cave would you choose and, and why? I don't think I have a, a favorite type of cave. What I do like are the formations, and one of the formations in particular that I always look for are helictites. They're the small, straw-like, antler-like uh, formations. They appear to have like grown in zero gravity because they they turn and twist and you know they they angle at, at in odd directions and um, and there's something about them. There's they're one of the mysteries of science. I mean, it's like you know how do bumblebees fly and why do men have nipples? I mean, it's it's like science has not been able to answer why they formed or how they formed. And so whenever I see them, I get real excited about it, and I'm always going to snap a lot of pictures about them. So uh, there's not a particular type of cave for me or any one that I imagine I would love to go see, but if I can go into any cave and see some helictites, then I'm happy. Right now, Dav is going to tell you how the bumblebee flies, why men have nipples, (laughs) and how those form. It's a mystery of science. (laughs) I went in this cave once, and it was about 30 feet long, full of water. It was a warm spring. You actually entered the cave by passing under a waterfall. That happened. Yeah, you're kind of sucking the ceiling for air in places, but you get back to the back and there's like all these drips coming from the ceiling. And it's just one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And so awesome and relaxing and fun. And it was only 30 feet long. One of my favorite caves as well. And mine. Wow, so that's three out of four right here. How come no one's ever taken me there? (laughs) (laughs) Every time they've invited you, you've been looking for that damn gun. (laughs) One other thing I remember about that cave is the people and just being back in the cave and having a beer and hanging out and laughing and talking. And and you take your helmet and just put it underwater and it illuminates the entire grotto. It's pretty incredible. Don't drink in caves. (laughs) Unless it's a 30-foot cave. So I think just the relationships that you form and the friendships that you can grow on these these trips and expeditions, whether it's a 30-foot cave with a beer in your hand or whether, you know, it's a 900-foot cave that nobody's ever been in before that, that just keeps on going vertical. It's really about the people and about... Um, seeing everybody who's really passionate about this activity that you all love and kind of sharing that. You're just going to give a thumbs up to her answer? I'm giving a thumbs up to that answer, yeah. (laughs) All right, so one of the last things I'd like us to do is share any places online or elsewhere that people can go to get more information, learn how to find their local grotto, or research caving in general. National Speleological Society, 
Cave Research Foundation. Caves.org. SBSAR.org is the San Bernardino County Search and Rescue if you want to learn more about search and rescue. A lot of national parks that have caves will have a lot of information on their websites about the local caves in that area as well. So here's the final one, which is a very open-ended question, which is take this opportunity to cover either something we haven't spoken about in, at all that you'd like to share with people, or if there's a final thought that you'd like to leave people with, go, Daff. If you want to get into caving, buy the vertical gear and practice. The vertical gear is relatively cheap. Even if you bought the best kit for caving, all the pads, the cave suit, the helmet, the light, the harness, the vertical gear, like you're only looking at like $1,000. And that's for like all the best stuff, totally kitted out. And you know, chances are you're going to pick that stuff up slowly over time, researching meticulously every piece. Like spend the money, it's not that much. And then you'll look like you actually mean it. That's an important thing when people are looking at you and thinking like, oh, he bought the right light and he bought the right helmet. He's not, he's not wearing a bike helmet with the cheapest headlamp you can buy at Walmart. What you wear into a cave says a lot about how serious you are. And if you want people to take you seriously and take you to the good stuff, that's a very strong way to put your best foot forward. So he's saying you don't have good enough gear, Carl, to go to that waterfall. Apparently. <laughs> no one's ever invited me there. Once you have that gear, practice. Do so safely, but if you possibly can, set up something in your garage, in your tree out back, and practice, practice, practice. That's going to really, really help you later in your caving life. Just to what Jen alluded to earlier, it's really about the people and the camaraderie. I've met so many great people in caving. It doesn't matter you know, who you are, what your background is, what your politics are. Cavers are just generally nice people. And I say that having belonged to a number of other different types of outdoor clubs, you know, there's, there's just something about cavers. Again, they come from all walks of life. Jerry, for instance, is a world-renowned economist, and, you know, I get a chance to, to ask him questions about finance and accounting and, and uh, economics, wage. and, you know, there's nowhere he can go. He's stuck in a cave with me, and, you know, <laughs> he, he tends to answer those questions. His time is not cheap, you know. <laughs> Ask one of his clients. <laughs> so it's, it's just another benefit for you know, joining a grotto for 15 bucks a year. You get to have access to people like, like Jerry. So that's why you haven't been to that cave that we've been talking about. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would echo part of what Carl said, that cavers are just, they just want to go caving and have a good time. So you spend the day caving safely really enjoying the underground environment and going someplace that people just normally don't go and seeing things that most people will never get a chance to see. And then in the evenings, you sit around the campfire and uh, and have great conversation. And think if someone's interested in caving, find a grotto, join it, get active in it, don't be shy. You'll find that uh, cavers are almost universally accepting of everybody. Especially if you're a small person who's Maybe you think of yourself as not very athletic or not, you know, big, strong person. Caving is a good activity for people who are small and thin and can fit into tight spaces. <laughs> so, kind of kidding. It's a, it's a place where everybody tends to accept everybody else for who you are. There's not a lot of judgment. There's not a lot of ego. 
there's not a lot of competition. It's just a bunch of nice people who want to hang out and do something that we all love. I think on that note, we can wrap this up and everybody can go home and take a nap or go to sleep or eat dinner or whatever we all still need to do. <laughs> all right, guys, so take us away with an acapella rendition of the... You're the one whose idea it was. Go for yeah. it. It can be the beginning. I don't Dad care. I can do, do the beginning. I all right, do go for beginning. it. All right, zip, zip, zip. Thud, thud. Creak! Someone oil the door already. Seriously. Grass, 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 grass. Guitar. Guitar, 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 guitar. Guitar, guitar. How's the harmonica go? Alright, that's all I got. I think that's all we need to hear. Alright, thanks everybody, except for Dav. <laughs> And now it is that time to head on over to the website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode 55, The Caving Roundtable. And there you will find a multitude of photographs of our guests in action under the earth. And you'll find all of the links discussed in this show and more. And if we didn't quite cover everything you wanted to know about caving, then go ahead and get in touch with us. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com or give us a call, 818-925-0106. And while you're there, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you consume podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to this show and please rate the show, review the show, and share it with someone who wants to know more about caving. Usually, this is the part where I say, next time on the show. But instead, I will be telling you that we will be taking a small break. I have been struggling to keep this show going on top of all of my other responsibilities this year. And so I'm going to take a break for a bit, come back in October with new fresh episodes. So there will not be a new episode of the podcast September 1st, but that day will be the two-year anniversary of the launch of this show. So maybe that will be a great day to catch up on past episodes. In the meantime, I will get back to work and see all of you in October. See you then. No, and the other thing, you know, uh, how I started posting to the wiki is uh, from uh, Chris Brennan. You met Chris Brennan, right? right. Chris Brennan so, is the has, person who established a lot of the canyons in Southern California and Los Angeles area and wrote up all the early beta that everyone used for decades, I guess. Yeah, so that's uh, when I started canyoneering in the U.S., you know, when I Googled up canyoneering after my ex-wife left. Chris Brennan website showed up and I saw all this information and this is great and I joined you know a trip uh, that Randy Poor organized and Chris Brennan organized uh, to Eton it wasn't that good honestly because it was November and Eton was not flowing <laughs> but, but it was a great canyon I was super uh, grateful that they organized a trip bringing complete strangers but then I found this guy that publishes all his adventures and he publishes them so that others can follow in his footsteps 
on their own. And I thought, when I grow up, I want to be with like him, you know, because I want to inspire others to become what they want to become without having to kiss anybody's asses. <laughs>